I think studying the competitors and also having a future-focused mindset is uh, extremely important. I've been interested to see how many people like Jeff Bezos are interested not just in solving a problem, but in exploiting an opportunity. Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. Since 2014, we've been bringing you conversations with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. Topics we cover include technology, culture, leadership, and more. Coming to you from the Three Pillar Global Studio in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your guest host for this episode, Jennifer Ives. Hey friends, this is Jennifer Ives and welcome back to the Innovation Engine. On this episode, we'll be looking at the evolution of media. We're gonna be talking about how media companies or any company really can make the leap to becoming a digital first organization. Why now is actually a good time to be in the media business despite everything you may read and hear to the contrary and what media consumption will look like a decade from now or assumptions about what that consumption will look like. Here with us today to talk about that and more is Shelby Coffey. After a long and distinguished career in the news business, Shelby is now vice chair of the museum. He was executive vice president at ABC News in New York before joining CNN in 1999, where he was news chief at CNN FN. Previously, he was the editor of the Los Angeles Times. And while there, he was named editor of the year by the National Press Club for the Times coverage of the LA riots, the Northridge earthquake, and the OJ Simpson trial. Shelby has held editorial positions with the Dallas Times Herald, US News and World Report, and the Washington Post. In 2001, he was named a fellow of the Freedom Forum, where he has studied and has written about the media and First Amendment issues. To say that we're honored to have him join us is an understatement, so let's get started Enjoy. Shelby, let's start off the episode by giving listeners a sense of your background beyond what I mentioned in the intro. I want to ask about a specific point in your career. You made the switch from print to TV in the 90s. And what prompted you to make that switch? I had been, had started at the Washington Post, hired by Ben Bradley in what turned out to be the great glory days of the rise of the Post from a good regional newspaper to a top-flight national newspaper. And then, after a couple of quick loop-de-loops, became editor of the Los Angeles Times in 1988 and stayed through, not quite, 1998. And those were enormously invigorating years in terms of news. Uh, Not all of it uh, good for the city, like the riots on the Rodney King, uh, after the Rodney King verdict, uh, following the beating, uh, the O.J. Simpson trial, uh, any number of other things happened so that only partly ironically in the newsroom, we called ourselves the masters of disaster. But it was uh, a tremendously growth-oriented time. At that point, the Los Angeles Times had four major additions uh, downtown. And we because LA is different and had spread out, 
the idea was that we would have an Orange County edition, a Ventura County edition, a San Fernando Valley edition. And all of those were ways to intensify the local coverage as well as having the broad, overarching national, international, and statewide coverage. It was the time of the gatekeeper and the time uh, when we were making, at that point, a billion dollars a year and about 20% profit margins. So uh, when there was a sizable change in the top executive suites and uh, my uh, top uh, publisher, whom I reported to, decided to leave, I thought it might be interesting to do something different because I could not really imagine a better top job in newspapers. So I was offered uh, to come in to ABC News uh, with a new administration taking over from the seniored but uh, still very vital Rune Arledge. Uh, he had invented a number of things, nightline, Monday night football. He'd been both sports and news and a genius of the medium. A couple of years into that, I got a call from the publisher who had hi first hired me to be editor of the Los Angeles Times. He had moved on and was now head of CNN. And CNN Financial News desperately needed a new top guy. And so knowing that I loved the market, but as an amateur, brought me in uh, to deal with that. And it was enormously invigorating. It was, at that point, a smaller competitor to CNBC. But since Ted Turner's dream at one point was to buy NBC, <laughs> there was a thought that maybe that would be merged together and then an interesting future might arrive. But instead, a different future arrived. And AOL came and bought Time Warner. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, over time, the person who had hired me left, and so I left and came back to Washington and had been on the advisory committee of what is now the Museum and the Freedom Forum, which is the parent organization, and built the museum. Uh, that organization built the museum in Washington, and I had a hand in that. And that's where I've been. So you've you just mentioned a couple of those changes. You've had a huge front row seat to to a changing industry, and it continues. Those changes continue to impact the media industry today, right? The media space, specifically the news media. And for the companies that are thriving in an increasingly competitive space, what are some of the things you see that they have in common? It is fascinating to think of the qualities. An element of visionary leadership, I think, is part of it. Nimbleness, speed in adapting, and changing if the adaptation is wrong. Now, I come at this from a somewhat old media perspective. But because I was in Los Angeles uh, fairly early on, specifically in 1989, uh, Will Hurst, who was uh, the grandson of the great William Randolph Hearst, himself a, an eminent publisher and magazine person, was the first of the print people to become a bona fide techie. Uh, he became a Kleiner Perkins 
guy. And in 1989, he invited me to come up to the World Series, which was famous as the Cross Bay World Series because Oakland was playing San Francisco. Mm-hmm. became even more famous two nights after the night we spent at the World Series because there was an earthquake during the game, uh, which you may recall. But the night I was there, he said, uh, I want you to meet some people uh, who will be in the box with us who included uh, Scott McNeely, who was then head of Sun Microsystems, T.J. Rogers from Cypress Semiconductor. And he said, there's this guy coming down from Seattle, and his plane's coming in about the same time as yours, so I'll pick you both up. And that was when I first met Bill Gates. And it was, uh, for me, uh, sort of a Saul on the road to Damascus, the scales fall from my eyes uh, evening, uh, uh, keeping up with the conversation, uh, which I must say, the techies were very nice about trying to keep me included. But with that, I saw what an extraordinary change was coming. And I think uh, from that flow from the companies that were able to adapt and those that were less able. And one was that the native digital companies, in part because They had people who didn't have the same assumptions in their background that those of us from old media companies had, have a considerable advantage. And it is intriguing to me to see, uh, for example, I met uh, Jeff Bezos through Will at another time and heard some of his stories before he was Jeff Bezos in quite the same way. This was Bill Gates before he was Bill Gates. It is very interesting to get a sense of their minds and how they adapt and how they see the future. I've read a fair amount about them. And I think it was just hard uh, for old media companies not to have the same assumption in the back of their minds that the gatekeepers will continue to be in charge somehow. Walter Cronkite is in the back of the minds of a lot of people who grew up with him. I think studying the competitors and also having a future-focused mindset is uh, extremely important. I've been interested to see how many people like Jeff Bezos are interested not just in solving a problem, but in exploiting an opportunity. And so I think the opportunity focus, rather than, oh, how do we deal with this glitch, does characterize a lot of the people who are the winners in the digital space. It would come as no surprise to anyone that succeeding on the digital fronts an imperative for media companies, or really any company today. And for those looking to make the leap to become a truly digital-first organization, what are some of the concrete steps that they could take? You actually referred to or intimated a few just in in the last last question. I think a, a couple of things come to mind. One is that every company should consider itself a media company because of the vast range of platforms and methods of communicating you have to be out telling your story or your competitors will exceed you and maybe tell your story in a negative way. So I think it's a, it's a critical time to have that, that set of skills. And it does take a set because there is not the same dominant 
range where three television networks, th- four big newspapers, three news magazines. Uh, looking at the, the companies that have digital first mindsets, again, I think the digital native is uh, a very important figure. And I'm speaking against interest because obviously I come from the era, I'm 71 years old, and some of us are able to adapt to this world, but it's not the same, I think, uh, from uh, the, the viewpoint that makes you think we're not just shifting into, we are creating uh, the new world. We look at the future, and now I want to take a look back at the past just for a minute. You're sitting on a wealth of news and media history at the Museum, one of my favorite museums, by the way. Thank you very much. And those archives must be incredible. Was there any point in your career, or now that we're looking back through the archives and at the archives, that you could predict that these changes in the way that content is now being consumed or how it was consumed, how media would adjust to this? One of uh, the most interesting lectures I went to at the Los Angeles Times, back when we had the 20% profit margins, we sponsored a Times Mirror Scholar uh, to come out and work at the Huntington Library, Times Mirror being the parent company of the LA Times. And a, a gentleman came who had been a historian of the media. And he said the interesting thing from... Uh, radio and telegraph times on was the way in which new media forms would come in and it would seem to be the end for the old media form. There were many predictions for that. But in fact, most of the old media forms stayed. For example, radio, going to be thrown out by television. No, it stayed. It fractionalized. It's very different. We don't have one big broadcast that has the Jack Benny show that 80% of America listens to, but uh, certainly it's a very sizable communications form. Likewise, broadcast television is going to be run down by cable television. They're both here. They're both different. Uh, so one of, uh, one of the lessons that I think is worth keeping in mind is that the current media forms Many of them will probably stay, but in different, with very different economics. Uh, what has, I think, changed from what he was seeing was Moore's Law, the, the hyperconnected world, as Tom Friedman puts it, means that because of the geometric speed of what we are able to do, that old forms are discarded much more quickly uh, in the digital world, and the uh, uh, amount of time, the sense that you could create something and, ah, as, as mass market newspapers, for example, did, you could look forward to a number of decades of pretty good financial standing, waxing and waning perhaps uh, in individual cases, but the, the genre would work. That's, that's gone. That's different. It's interesting to go and see what the telegraph did. Not that long ago, they were using carrier pigeons to uh, bring stock prices <laughs> from England to France. We have one of the, a stuffed pigeon. And then 
the telegraph changes every changes strategy in the Civil War. And so speed certainly is uh, a, an extraordinary uh, accelerator, not only of information, but of the forms it takes. And I can barely imagine what 10 years from now is going to bring, but I would argue that even most of our leaders of the new tech giants among the most valuable in the country now probably didn't foresee 10 years ago exactly where they are now today yeah. but they they were they were nimble in their adaptation yeah many media companies are in fact shifting to video and away from purely audio and is this a direct reaction to the changing of of consumption and consumer habits and how do you see these companies adapting from a business and revenue perspective as we move into more video consumption? In the news world, it is interesting to watch. And, and undoubtedly, the proportion will get sizably larger, not least because every person with uh, his or her iPhone is a potential journalist, uh, a citizen journalist who can, if they're at a big event, can uh, take pictures of it and that can alter the course of uh, that event and its aftermath. I think that will continue to have a, a, a growing space. I doubt, but I could be wrong. That's <laughs> the reason I'm not the head of Facebook, uh, that the printed word will be erased uh, by video. It has, uh, for one thing, a caption on a still picture makes a huge difference. The description you put on a video uh, with words will be very important. And also the the analytical part of the mind, which wants to maybe highly impressed by video, let's say, of Putin giving a speech to adoring masses in Moscow, that may give me a sense of him as a person, how people are reacting to him. But I may indeed want to be able to read and think about the difference between what Putin said in Moscow and what our intelligence sources say that he said some two months earlier, and to compare that with his history. And I think it's much harder to see how that could be done better in video for the person who wants to analyze it. So I think, as with previous media incarnations, it, it is a question of speed. Again, that you have the capability, you're, you're, you can handle much larger bytes of video, uh, and that can move better but that will not fully displace the old, that is to say, written or audio, uh, but it may change the relationship between them. Many media companies are seeing that their, their revenue generation is changing from advertisements to other alternatives like paywalls or leveraging brand loyalty and content. What are you seeing on, on your end and where do you see the industry going to adjust to this, this fallout of advertising revenue? changing model difficult difficult time at the at the moment the old gatekeeper world of big networks big tele big newspapers 
dependent happily on a near monopoly, now that there are so many competitors on so many different levels for that one precious commodity, attention and its handmaiden, persuasion, that this is correct, that it is worth coming back. I'm getting something out of this. You have a revenue world that is mutating almost as fast as the forms themselves because advertisers are looking at what will continue to draw specific attention. It's much more nichified. It always was. But uh, I'll give you one nice illustrative example, I believe, from the Ken Oletta's book, Googled, in which uh, young Larry Page and Sergey Brin are making their rounds to meet some of the big big hitters in the media world. They go to see Mel Carmazan, who was much beloved of Wall Street. He worked at CBS and other places. They were explaining how advertising now they would have they would have data that would show that you, you specifically, you personally had responded to a particular type of ad. So that showed you were interested in BMWs or Prada handbags or what have you. And as this began to dawn on Mel, he said, I'll keep this PG-13, you are bleeping with the magic. And... Ken used that example early on in the book because it was a turning point in the sense of, in revenue terms, we're going from mass market dominated to niche to personal uh, targeted advertising. And of course, as the uh, as the data has gotten so much larger, you are now at a point where, as I understand it, 60 to 70% of all new digital revenue is going to either Facebook or Google. They have the great, huge data about uh, your, uh, your interest. That it has meant, for example, for this a nice flourishing of smaller news sites uh, over the early aughts and into the teens, you're seeing some real trouble coming for them. So that one article about them was winter comes for the digital news sites just this past week or so. Creativity and range of how to get advertising-supported news coverage is not consonant with the actual news gathering abilities. It's just, it's, it's been very hard and I have great sympathy. And uh, one, uh, one point that uh, I would want to make more or less in a historical sense was that people have said to me, oh, newspapers had all this time to adjust in the late 80s and early 90s. They were too fat and happy and arrogant and trying to do that. There may be a half a truth or a partial truth in that, I would say maybe less than half, because 
many of the major newspapers and major news organizations that I worked at or knew about, knew as competitors, were trying very hard. It wasn't that the world did not see that the digital world was coming on and was going to make great changes. But predicting the right way, going, you know, how heavy and how hard to go in, uh, you would find a lot of adaptation that was attempted and from a position of we've got to try to get onto this. But one of my favorite charts from the business insiders, I recall, shows that in 2006, newspaper advertising cumulatively was at about $55 billion. By 2012, six years later, it has fallen to $27 billion. And that's everybody who's in there. That's all advertising. Over on the end of the chart, you had this one company, which would have been, I believe, 13 years old, 14 years old. And they had its revenue, which was $66 billion in advertising, a company called Google. So I'm not sure no matter how brilliant you were, as they say on Wall Street, you can't outrun the market. So in, in those terms, what's the impact of consolidation under conglomerates on companies across the board? And, and does this affect the balance between independent content creators versus brand content creators? And I'm sure the museum is seeing both sides of this coin. It's an interesting picture now. You have at one and the same time a fair amount of big consolidation uh, going on, but uh, the plus side of the rise of digital media has also meant that innovators, different ideas, lots of voices were able to be heard. I I don't want to point out the gatekeeper years as an absolute golden age. One of the things that, that we see now is that lots of people who have a different viewpoint, a, a, a see another part of society, are getting heard much more easily uh, because it doesn't go through uh, the more establishment funnel. What, what is an interesting change is to see companies like Verizon uh, coming uh, and AT&T coming and getting content creators and in part because with their data of consumer interests and consumer habits, they can, AT&T and Time Warner will be able to specify with great accuracy what HBO shows you might want. Netflix, for example, is able to do, has been able to do that and become a huge success. I think that uh, the pluses are that that will add more money to the creative side. The downside is how much will it hone in on just that for you? Now, wait a minute. How do I get the range? How do I see the broader picture? The things that I don't generally, I may not even want to read it, but it's worth knowing that there are, 20% 20% of the population feels very strongly, quite differently than I do. Uh, I think Silicon Valley people will find ways to adapt 
uh, to that for people who want it. The question is, will enough people want it? When do the habits uh, of mind take over and become self-propelling? And that is one of the problems of great consolidation, speaking of where news sites and entertainment and big data all converge. It was, in the day, fairly expensive at the Los Angeles Times to have 25 foreign bureaus. So let's close out our conversation today with your current gig at the museum. What are today's goals for the museum? And can you give us an insider's preview of what the future of the museum looks like? Mm -hmm. The uh, museum uh, right now is it's a temple of the First Amendment. Uh, they are on Pennsylvania Avenue, right across from the National Gallery of Art. And you see there uh, the First Amendment itself in, on a giant marble slab. We like to think that if people go between the White House and Capitol Hill, they'll have to see it. They may not salute it, but they have to see it. And I'd argue that it was one of the founding fathers' best ideas uh, to make free expression in in speech, in press, in religion, in the right to peaceably assemble, to uh, seek redress of grievance is the, is the phrase, but it's really to ask the government to meet the needs of a person or a group that, uh, that sees their needs, needs are not being met. And that was in part to throw off the yoke of the British, where under an authoritarian, in that case, uh, uh, royal government, if you said the wrong thing, you printed the wrong thing, you worshiped the wrong way, you could lose your house, uh, you could lose your family, you could lose your life. Autocratic governments are not gone from this world. And in fact, quite a nice book called The Modern Dictator's Handbook that makes a case they're (laughs) doing pretty well. And in fact, uh, uh, some using digital media for their own devices, it's a great tracking device to catch dissidents. And so, uh, like many inventions uh, of the mind, the fact that the First Amendment became the gold standard for a period, even though certainly after 91, after the fall of international communism, at least as a, as a gospel in the Soviet Union, people thought that there was a steady march on to more liberal democracy. That hasn't happened. It's an interesting uh, uh, twist in some countries. And yet I think that those values matter a lot. That's one of the things that we... Uh, like to do with the museum. We continue to have changing exhibits and uh, do uh, free expression awards. Uh, This past year, we gave awards to John Lewis and and Tim Cook of Apple, who had taken a number of uh, personal stands. Uh, We gave them to the Russian rock group Pussy Riot, who were introduced by Glenn Close coming in from London, where she was starring in Sunset Boulevard. Wonderful evenings. And so the first hundred days of the Trump presidency and the press, we had a four-hour-long set of seminars with everyone from Kellyanne Conway uh, to the reporters who cover the White House. 
two former press secretaries like Ari Fleischer. And I was told by our social media people that we got 400 million hits, which I found no way to contradict them. So we'll take it. It sounds very good. But uh, in any case, uh, getting the attention uh, of the public, for especially in this period where the, the press uh, feels itself under a frequent assault uh, by the president uh, and having that dialogue where we also have, we, all, we also had Sean Spicer, who was then the press secretary. It was the day after he had made a, made a flub talking about the use of poison gas <laughs> in World War II. And to his credit, he showed up the next day. I think it was part of his part of his uh, apology tour. But uh, that that kind of dialogue, free speech doesn't belong just to the people we like. It belongs to the people we don't like. And hearing that uh, and, and talking about that, having those events at the museum, as well as the exhibits, uh, is important. Uh, we are now uh, going through a year-long strategy review, the Freedom Forum, which is the parent organization, is led by Jan Newharth, is uh, looking at how and what uh, the the museum and the Freedom Forum's mission will be in the years ahead. But uh, we are very proud of what we are doing, and we'll be doing it in 2018. Good. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. As I mentioned, it's one of my favorite museums, so keep up the wonderful work. And I love uh, the point that you just made, that freedom of speech is for everyone. Absolutely whether, whether right. it's your opinion or a differing opinion, it's for everyone. One other thought about approaching the future that is an interesting adaptation of a method I got from the former head of MI6, which are the British intelligence agency, a man named Sir Colin McCall. And he's only written one article for public consumption in his life. And it had to do with how the fall of the Soviet Union was missed and what to do about it. And he did this in conjunction with a group called Oxford Analytica, which I'm on the board of. His uh, point was that while he was there at MI6, his whole career, obviously, the Soviet Union was the major adversary. And yet, like most intelligence agencies and most forecasters, they didn't really see the fall of the Soviet Union. And going back, he thought the reason for that was that it, this was an assumption that was so large, so permanent, that they had not noticed the small cracks that might lead up to and did lead up to the fall. Therefore, he set up something called the stress matrix analysis, in which he, along with uh, the Dons and others who work at Oxford Analytica came up with what they decided were the 20 most consequential questions for geopolitics and geoeconomics and went to the specialist in each of those and did a force ranking on a theory of probability with five being it's happened and one being it's not going to happen then set those out so that these assumptions for each of them had to be examined every 
couple of months so that if there were sizable changes like Iran getting a nuclear bomb, becoming much closer, it wouldn't be something that would sneak up uh, on the analysts. And I think of that as uh, probably something, an adaptation of that in a broad sense is uh, extremely interesting for people who are adapting a mindset for the future. What are your major assumptions? What are your major movers in your field? Uh, And uh, a second corollary to it uh, is uh, something that uh, Will Hurst, uh, I mentioned as the great publisher from a great publishing family who became a techie at Kleiner Perkins and sees the world. He said uh, on uh, oftentimes in the stock market, you'll see one small group will come up with an extremely novel, interesting idea. As soon as it's caught on to, some other people come over and doing it. This is why most novelties don't last forever. And then everybody comes over and then the floor falls through because there's so many people all trying to do the one thing. Warren Buffett put it even more succinctly, said in, often in looking at the future, you will find the innovators, the imitators, and the idiots. And being on the right end of that curve is where you want to be and recognizing if you're on the wrong end of it, time to get out quick before the floor falls in. Thank you for sharing insights with us today. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. Much appreciated. The Innovation Engine podcast is brought to you by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. Head to www.threepillarglobal.com to learn more about our services. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and Google Play to ensure that you never miss a new episode and head to threepillarglobal.com slash podcast to receive new updates about our show and read the full show notes and transcript of each episode. Don't forget, we also have an app for our Three Pillar podcasts. Just search for the Innovation Engine on the App Store.